And welcome back to another episode of Imagine Akasha. I'm Tom Fry. And I'm Nancy Valling. And our guest today is Todd Akamesis. And he is a trained remote viewer, self-taught astral projector, and brainwave entrainment researcher. He's developed spiritual development tools for inducing deep altered states for more than two decades and also teaches people how to access hyperspace, the afterlife, and beyond. Welcome, Todd. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. We're, we're certainly glad to have you. Now, you're calling. are you calling from London? Is that where, you living, or where you're living calling right now? I'm from London, yes. Yeah, I grew up in the United States, uh, but I've lived here for the last 27 years, so this is my spiritual home now. Well, 15 years ago, uh, you set out on a journey to search the afterlife of your loved ones and to get closure and say goodbye. If you could tell us a little bit about uh, starting the journey and where it has taken you to, that'd be great. For sure. Um, I think, you know, for a lot of people, it was, you know, when you don't get to say goodbye, maybe you're not there when a loved one passes and you have that regret. You have that, you know, that sense of not having closure. And that really was, I guess, uh, one, of the, one of the factors that set me out on that journey. And also recalling that when I was a child, a very young child, like five, six, seven years old, I started having a spontaneous out-of-body experience. And that started after a near-death experience uh, when I fell into a pond as a young boy. You know, mixing those two things together, wondering if I could use, uh, you know, those experiences from childhood, that phenomena, uh, to actually you know, leave my body, visit the afterlife before I die, so I can not just you know, get closure with these loved ones, but you know, really start to get answers, because I think we're kind of left with this twin narrative from science and religion, and, and you know, that doesn't quite tick all the boxes for all of us. No, not at all. Um, you know, Todd, I went to Todd's training in France to learn how to do this out-of-body exploring and astral projection. Can you tell us what the difference between those two, in your words, is, Todd? Uh, astral projection and out-of-body experience is the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, this is interesting because this kind of comes up a lot, and I, and I think the best way uh, to, to approach this is to see the term astral projection as being a much older term that was used by, like, the Theosophical Society at the turn of the 20th century, etc., around... You know, those really early days of uh, this being explored in the West. And I think it was then not until around the 1960s uh, to when the term out-of-body experience was coined. And I think it was to, it was really the same thing. But I think people now, some people use the terms interchangeably, and some people do view them as two different things. But I'm kind of in the camp that, I think if we have too many labels, we're just going to confuse uh, people because from my perspective, you know, there, there are several different ways that we can leave our body, but ultimately we're leaving our body and entering, you know, these other dimensions of reality. And, and I think this is where, why some people prefer the different labels. Uh, maybe if you're in the near earth plane and therefore observing physical reality while you're out of body, I think some people would be inclined to call that an out-of-body experience, whereas if they're projecting their consciousness to another dimension, they'd probably want to label that astral projection. Uh, And I can understand that. But again, from my perspective, I think it's more important to help people uh, to be able to have the experience, the direct experience, not be too bogged down with, you know, is this a lucid dream? Is this an out-of-body experience? Is this astral projection? 
But ultimately, what I find more important is for them to get conscious, as conscious as they can possibly get within that other dimension of reality, even if it's a dimension of a dream, like I said, through lucid dreaming. I think the priority should be getting conscious, no different from being conscious here in our body, because, you know, I was just earlier, I was out walking around in the city, and I found, I walked on the autopilot from home down to the local grocery store, and it wasn't until about halfway home again where I realized I'd been on autopilot, because I'd been in my head the whole time, and I couldn't have told you one single person I passed by, you know, the, the clothing they were wearing, their appearance, what they, what they looked like, because there was too much in my head. And I think this is why uh, people have challenges with the out-of-body experience, because we're not in our bodies enough when we're awake on this dimension, let alone these other dimensions. Yeah, definitely. So what do you think the headspace dimension is? <laughs> I think that's the dimension of the ego. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Me too, but I'm I <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very similar, I think, to what, uh, I think a good example is what's taking place right now in the world with, you know, the, with, with all the drama around, uh, you know, a virus. And I think this is the, the ego to me is like a virus in a sense. It's, it wants to take over. It wants you to only think about it. It wants to consume you. It wants you to be completely focused on, you know, pain and suffering. And I think this is why it's so important for us to remember that, you know, in fearful times, we need to remember to look, you know, to, to the one thing that's going to give us the reassurance, that's going to give us the clarity that we need. And that's the love that, you know, from my perspective, uh, emanates from beyond this world, you know, consciousness. I think consciousness underlies, it permeates everything. And... You know, we need to learn how to focus and be present with that because if we're not present, then, of course, we're either obsessing about the past, uh, some, whatever it was that happened yesterday that triggered us, uh, or we're feeling stress or anxiety about, you know, some probable future that may never happen, but are, we're fixated on it as a probability. We're fixated on the unknown and the uncertainty around not feeling in control about what might happen. So... I think it's really important, um, uh, you know, the out-of-body state. I, I teach it because I feel as above, so below. You know, if you're unconscious on this reality, you're unconscious on other realities too. You're totally unconscious to your double life in these other realities. But if you start to become conscious here, you will start to become conscious on these other dimensions by default. And I think it's at that point you do start to realize, you know, the expression as above, so below. Because... There is love on these other dimensions. There is support on these other dimensions. And I think once we recalibrate our thinking and our, and our feelings, our feelings that, you know, this is reality, we start to allow that external support, that external love here to start to affect us. You were talking about um, uh, when you began your journey, how it was basically to get closure from loved ones. Um, what, now, was this astral projection, and were you um, and were you able to actually make those connections and actually see, you know, whether it be your parents or your grandparents, and have a conversation with them and kind of know where they are and where are they, if if that's the case? Indeed, and I think this is it's a really interesting question because for a lot of us, I think we've been so conditioned by religion where 
you know, we, we feel that everything is very black and white. Right. Uh, we either go up or we go down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, I think, in itself creates a lot of uncertainty. Not, you know, even if you believe your loved one does survive death, but where are they? You know, are they okay? Are they experiencing some inter- internal damnation? Are they, you know, hanging out on the, the puffy white clouds with angels? A lot of uncertainty. Or are they stuck so, in the bardo somewhere in between, you know? Or stuck in between, yeah, yeah. In some limbo state, correct. So from my perspective, uh, uh, from all of my experiences now, it's about probably a good 15 years of, you know, a thousand or more very conscious experiences. And what I mean by that, is waking consciousness within these, you know, other states. So being able to leave your body and have an end-to-end journey with full waking consciousness. And if you can do that, if you can imagine being able to be in another dimension of reality, navigate that dimension of reality, that this other realm of consciousness, and be able to have that analytical mind, to be able to, you know, uh, to be able to be conscious of what you're experiencing so that when you come back into your body, you have a full memory of it. And if you have an experience of a deceased loved one on the other side, you get to bring that memory back as if that was a waking conscious memory from this reality, from the earth plane itself. Mm. And that can be very powerful because that kind of experience can literally, you can consider it like a boundary dissolving experience. It, it removes that fear that, you know, there may not be life after death. Have these experiences and you realize there is only life after life. You know, it's just a continuum of, a continuum of living. So for me, my first experience of a deceased loved one, finding a deceased loved one, was with my stepfather. You know, that was really powerful for me because in the physical world, when he was alive, we didn't have a very good relationship. You know, to the point to where I don't think we liked each other very much, to be honest. So after he died, I I was full of regret. I was full of remorse. And I really felt like I needed him to witness that. And it, it didn't feel enough to me to think that maybe he's sitting here in the room with me and he can feel my pain. Uh, I really wanted to have that face-to-face with him. And I just remembered as a child having experiences that were realer than real, you know, these experiences seemed to have a quality to them that even made the physical, my physical uh, childhood life seem like the dream. That's how real these experiences can be. So when I met my stepfather, you know, in the afterlife, you know, the environment, everything seemed to be much more full of life than physical life. And I think that's because when you're in your astral body, it's full of emotion, and you feel the emotion from everything. It's like every, like I said, everything is alive. Even if you're walking in an environment where there's pebbles underneath your feet, it's as if the pebbles themselves have a vitality that you can feel, and therefore you absolutely do and can feel that that connection that we talk about, that interconnectedness. So it's almost like hypersensitivity in a sense. I mean, it sounds like you're just, everything is, you know, 10 times more um, alive or 10 times more powerful than it is when you're just walking down the street. For sure. And I think a good way to, to, to maybe help people understand this is not only do we have an essence inside of us that survives death, we have an essence inside of us that precedes birth. So if, you know, if that is a worldview, if that's a viewpoint that people can connect with because they have the experience of that, 
and have a direct experience of that, you know, you start to wonder, okay, how deep does that rabbit hole go? Um, where did I live before I came here? Have I been, you know, here before? Uh, where are my homes on these other on these other uh, worlds? And from my perspective and my experience, I've come to realize that, you know, the astral worlds and the the mental worlds that you know are even of a higher vibration, a more uh, subtle energy. These are our homes. These are where we really ha have started our evolution as a soul, and then we drop down into these denser realities. And it's in these denser realities we have to find ourselves again. We have to remember who and what we are again. It's almost as if we've fallen into some spiritual amnesia when we enter these denser realities. But ultimately, you know, our spiritual home is on these higher, uh, these higher worlds. And it's just rediscovering that ultimately. So do you think that we are evolving, even though we have this ridiculous... Um, dramatic thing happening in this world? Do you think we are awakening to this information of being oneness? One of the things that I'm finding at the moment because of what's happening, you know, on a global scale here, I find that, you know, we are being forced in a way to go into this social distancing. And I think that is kind of a test. It's a kind of a test to help us, you know, realize that on some level, you know, this self-isolation, you know, really helps us see how much we need, we need each other. It helps us see, you know, how much we actually mean to each other. And I don't think that's really a bad thing because I think a lot of times, you know, we, we're in a routine that isn't really conductive for people to be able to take the time to think about the bigger picture, how actually interconnected we are. You know, we go to the grocery store at the moment and we're finding shortages uh, because people are buying in bulk, you know, they're panic buying, uh, you know, toilet paper in particular, and it, and it really does make you think. You know, when I picked up some toilet paper on the shelf, you know, tonight, I thought to myself, you know, I'm younger, I'm stronger. I'm not going to be as effective by this as someone who's, you know, maybe older than me, who's more infirm than me. And you know what? Ultimately, they have to take care of themselves too. And it really forced me to think about other people, to take me out of that me mindset and get me more into that we mindset. So I think in that regard, it is going to make a lot of people think more. And that can't be a bad thing. And I think ultimately, from one perspective, this is a storm in a teacup created by you know the mainstream media. Because when you really look at the figures, when you look at you know um, uh, influenza and look at uh, flu as a whole from last year, I think it's something like 5 million cases of, uh, of you know, of, of flu, uh, 30,000 deaths per month. And that just doesn't get reported by the media because, you know, the media has its own particular agenda. And I think people need to remember that. There, you know, there's, there's a business model that they run, and that business model at the moment seems to be... Fear-inducing. Exactly. Is, especially considering the fact that these are 24-hour news outlets. I mean, when we were growing up, you know, we'd have here in, here in America, you know, you know, someone like Walter Cronkite would come on, and you'd have him for an hour, and maybe you'd have local news for an hour, and that was basically it. They had two hours to fill, so of course, they're just going to hit on the big things. But then when you get something like this, like a pandemic, or you get even like... The, 
I've heard of like child abductions. There were more child abductions in the seventies when we were kids than there are now, but yet they, they have nothing else to talk about. So they focus in on this one. So we're all afraid of our child being abducted, which, which the, you know, the chances are very slim and none of that happening. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I grew up in the seventies as well. I completely agree. And I think one of the challenges that we've faced in this very modern, these very modern times, you know, we're in an age where we have virtual friends, virtual communities, virtual realities, and if you want something real, you have to actually take an action to make it real. You have to be willing to go out of your house. You have to be willing, you know, to go and knock on a neighbor's door. You have to be willing to actually be social. And I think, again, this, this kind of self-isolation that people are going to experience, you know, this social distancing, it's going to hit hard. It's going to hit home very hard, you know, how virtual our world has become. And hopefully that, that sense of connection, which I honestly think is hardwired into us, I think that there is a potential for that awakening again in so many people. Yes, me too. I think that too. We can only hope. Although right now there's so much to look at, For just sure. the drama. I think this is one of the important things with like uh, being able to access higher states of consciousness because what it's doing is it's giving you an opportunity to take a break from the drama. Even if this was just everyday drama and not extraordinary drama that's going on at the moment. You know, even the everyday drama of your life we do need to take a break from it. We need to take a break to recalibrate our thoughts, recalibrate our feelings, our entire nervous system. Absolutely. You know, and through meditation, meditation allows us to go deep into spiritual reality, deep into our spiritual you know, self, to where we get the chance to, to actually be affected by this higher consciousness, be affected by stillness, be affected by presence. And when that happens, I find when you come out of meditation, you in that moment have a better relationship with physical reality and therefore people and other things and situations because you've given yourself that break. You mentioned just now meditation and taking a break from the world and what have you, but is there a danger of not coming back to the world or not coming back into your body uh, after you've done what you're, what you're doing, which is obviously not just meditating. I mean, you're projecting yourself astrally to a different plane or to a different universe. I mean, is there a chance that you're not going to wake up and you're going to get stuck there? Let's put it this way. I, I think it's, we all probably have uh, particular moments when we're more likely to die because I think we've all experienced in life where we have, it almost seems like we have invisible hands that in just the right moment pull us back onto the sidewalk uh, when we've not looked both directions and it stops us from, you know, uh, you know, from death, you know, that instant death. I think we've had moments where we get into cars and we hear a voice in our head that says, put your seatbelt on and moments later you're involved in a road accident. I think, you know, there is uh, a time to when, you know, and I know I'm touching on something like predestiny, like things can be predestined. I think the universe is far more creative than what we think as, you know, that sort of destiny. Um, you know, from our perspective, we have a very linear reality uh, experience. From these deeper states, these higher states of consciousness, the soul, for example, you know, when you hear somebody say, oh, I had the near-death experience, and in that moment, you know, my life flashed before my eyes. They're not just talking about, you know, having like, you know, they're in free fall off of a building where they have 
20 seconds before they meet the ground, they don't get 30 minutes to examine all of this information. That information is like compressed packet of information, like a zip file. And it all unfolds because in that moment, they're not just in their physical body. Their awareness is expanded beyond their body. And they're able to experience all of that information outside of time as we know it. And I think this is one of the key things about the out-of-body experience. It's far more, it reminds us of how creative and how dynamic the universe really is. So is there a danger to this? From my personal experience, 15 years, over 1,000 conscious experience, I know some of the other big uh, out-of-body explorers in the world who've had like 30, 40 years of out-of-body experiences. It's just not something that seems to get reported. I think it's one of those things where, yes, you know, you, you're, some people do die in their sleep. I don't think it's because they're out of their bodies and they get stuck on another dimension. That just doesn't seem to be how it works. It actually seems like it's more difficult to remain out of body than it is to, you know, to get out. It's like it's, it's challenging to get out. It's more difficult to stay out. Yeah, I can. Anytime I get out, I'm like, ooh, I'm out, and then right back in. Because there's this magnetic force that is drawing you back to the body because that is your grounded state of reality. You know, I've been in altercations on other dimensions of reality, some, you know, very not nice places, and that's no different from physical reality. You go out of your door, you can suddenly encounter people who are aggressive. There's no different on some of these other worlds because. They're not all high vibrational worlds, and it's just like we're not all high vibrational people in this world. But aren't you controlling some of that? I mean, when you're doing lucid dreaming or you're doing this, aren't you somewhat controlling your environment a little bit? That's what I've always thought it being. When you're in a lucid dream, then there is a lot of personal control that you can have, you know, over your direction, uh, over... Uh, you know, the environment. But let's say, for example, one of my favorite lucid dream teachers, his name is Robert Wagoner. He talks, he makes a very good point. Let's say you're flying. You're flying through the air during a dream. You wake up while you're flying. You're like, oh my God, I'm a, this is a dream. I'm dreaming. And you're like, I'm in control of this. And you're just flying in, you know, uh, you're saying, okay, I'm going to change my direction. I'm going to fly left and I'm going to fly right. But who's creating the scenery? Something is still in charge of creating the scenery while you're directing your experience through that scenery. And sure, fair enough, you can start to, you know, create within that realm because it's a very personal space. It's the type of space where it's very reactive to your thinking. But like, let's say, for example, what we might call the fourth dimension, the dimension that is immediately beyond our physical world. It is very dense like our physical environment. And it doesn't seem to want to shapeshift to our thoughts too easily at all. It's no different if I was to step out into the big city here, you know, in London, and I focus and concentrate all of my will on changing, you know, the color of a city bus. It's my will against the collective will, and the collective will is stubborn. So (laughs) it's no no different on another dimension of reality. If I go to an astral city, this city exists whether I'm there or not. So therefore, it's a collective uh, consciousness. And if the collective consciousness has rules, even if those are beliefs, because ultimately, our beliefs become our rules to our life. And it's no different with collective consciousness. If there's a dominant belief system that says, we do not fly in this environment, then nobody flies in that environment. You would have to be an exceptional being. You'd have to be an exceptional exceptionally evolved being to break the collective will of a space. 
So is this a collective consciousness environment? I think it's, it comes down to free will. And I think a lot of people uh, are still trying to understand free will. There's the school of thought where some people will say there is no free will, or we have very little free will, you know, another camp. I'm inclined to think that ultimately your free will is your thoughts. You know, this, this is how, you know, this is how I see it. You, you have the will, you have the freedom to think one way or another. You have the freedom to think, you know, with fear or to think with love. And that's the extent of it, because ultimately your thoughts will then dictate uh, your feelings. Your feelings and your thoughts will dictate your actions. So that is your free will. And again, you know, this is up to you how, how you choose to think. And a lot of people might think, well, I don't choose to, to think angry thoughts. And fair enough. We don't. 96% of, our, of all of our actions are actually governed by unconscious thoughts and feelings. And it's getting to a point to where we start to realize that, yes, changing our thinking is a step-by-step process, just like most things in life. You might remember from the workshop, Nancy, one of our mantras was uh, progress, not perfection. Yes. And I think it's the same with activating more of this free will and that is learning that one step at a time, you're remembering to do reality checks, and the reality check can be as simple as checking in on yourself. How am I feeling right now? In that moment, if you discover, oh, wait a second, I didn't realize I was actually feeling depressed. I, I wasn't really you know, con- that conscious of it. And then you're able to go into that. You're able to actually feel your way through it and, and then let it go or use some sort of something some practical measure to get yourself back in you know to change your state so you know this does take time so it is a stepping step by step uh uh you know thing as far as i'm concerned well then well then could you astral project without knowing it people do it every single night every single night and that's without fail the moment we fall unconscious we're falling unconscious because when that happens the etheric body or the astral body is literally moving out of alignment in some way with the physical body and it disrupts consciousness on physical reality on the physical level so in every sleep cycle which we go through you know if we have an average sleep of say seven and a half eight hours you're probably having you know around five sleep cycles of about 90 minutes per cycle and the moment you fall to sleep you're literally we're 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 so trained to just fall unconscious. Uh, you know, there's, it's like a death where we have this, this conscious death every single night. But when we fall asleep, we're, we're literally, in a, in, within seconds, when we become unconscious, the energy body, the astral body, the etheric body, whatever you want to use, labels you want to use, they literally can float. The etheric body can just float inches above the physical body and people are completely oblivious to the fact that you know they're technically out of body and they just don't know it there there can be these moments where we even drift further we might drift to a loved one's home we might drift to another dimension of reality altogether to the afterlife and not even realize it we might have a an experience where we 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 have a reoccurring theme to a dream and that theme might be of a particular place, a particular environment with you know, the same people. This could actually be a sign that your 
on autopilot every single night. You're going to these locations because they have meaning. They have meaning because you've been there before. You know, they're, they're the places you lived before you incarnated. You know, this stuff is definitely there to be experienced and witnessed by people, but we have to actually have the desire to, to, to do this exploration. I find myself always packing. Every dream I have, I'm always, I always seem to be packing. Like I, I'm either packing to move or I'm packing like I, – but I'm always packing these bags or packing stuff up, and it's just – I wish I could kind of stop packing and just chill out for a while. <laughs> <laughs> there is probably – it is probably mirroring how you're feeling in physical reality in some way. Like I said, as above, so below. So if – if there's something you're feeling in physical reality, you might be feeling unsettled. You might be feeling like you're, you're living out of a suitcase in some way. You might feel like there's unfinished business, whatever it is, and it seems like it might be being mirrored in, a, in another dimension. Yeah. So, Todd, is there worlds out there that you've been to where people are aware of everything? For you know? sure. I think one of the things that uh, affects Earth is, from my own personal experiences again, it does seem that we've kind of, it seems like we're definitely going through a cycle. And it's interesting because sometimes when I give talks on these subjects, people come up to me ask, uh, afterwards and might ask me something like, have you studied Buddhism? And I'll say, no, I haven't studied Buddhism. They're like, well, everything you talked about, you know, there's context in Buddhism. And it's, it's because, you know, Ultimately, when you come out of body and you're visiting the same place that Buddha visited or Buddha's disciples can visit, of course there's going to be this, this consensus because, you know, these are, you know, real places. And it's getting to this, this uh, point in our development where we realize it's just, again, it's reawakening to this stuff. This, the astral planes have existed far longer than this physical world. So there are worlds out there that are more evolved than ours. Uh, I've, I went uh, a couple of times to the Andromeda, Andromeda galaxy when I was out of body. And there was one world in particular that I'd frequent. And they knew exactly where I was from. They knew exactly what our problems were. They knew that there were other uh, beings that were... Um, you know, forcing the vibration of the planet into a, a denser state. You know, they were aware of all of that. And, you know, I don't find that that is a one-off. I find that there, there, there are certainly other people and other worlds who are definitely aware of us. We're just not aware of them. It does seem like we're almost in some sort of lockdown or quarantine or, you know, partition. And I think it's part of our spiritual development for this world. I, I think it's we're on one of these worlds where it's it's PhD quality learning. You know, the school is challenging, but if the school wasn't challenging, you know, what would be your your you know your post experience of this? What would be the quality of your of your consciousness? So I think some worlds are more challenging, and we've opt, we've opted into a very a very uh, uh, interesting world for sure. Do you think that anybody can do this though? Because you just talked about going to a different galaxy, and and you actually remember, and you had the you know conversations with these people, so to speak. Is this something that anyone can do, or are you just you and Nancy blessed the fact that you have you know you're not developed but ahead of the curve? Or? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, because like or I less programmed. 
Maybe. I don't know. But is this something that, that, that it, with the right training and the right, you know, if, if going to conferences, for instance, and, and, and things that you've done, I mean, is this something that anyone can do, or do you have to have kind of a little bit of, uh, of a special uh, let's gift? Look at it, let's look at it this way. So Nancy's been to, you know, one of my retreats. And, you know, the, the thing that we do every single year is we learn from every single event, and we, we evolve the event to, to get better and better experiences. Over the last few years, we've gone from, you know, having a 20, 25, 30% success rate with, with students to now hitting 80 and 90% success rate. Wow. So it's, it is a matter of evolution, and, you know, for us to be able to create better tools to, to help people be more focused. Because this, my opinion is this. I do think that this is something we all do unconsciously every single night because it's natural. It's who we are. You know, we're, we're not really these human space suits. This is just a temporary journey. Even if it's like a hundred journeys we take reincarnating back into this world, it's still temporary on the scale, on a cosmic scale. And for a lot of us, you have to realize we just haven't been trained from birth. What have we been trained to do from birth? We've been conditioned with the idea that invisible friends aren't real. We've been conditioned with the belief that these experiences are just dreams. So basically, from birth, we're being told that everything that can't be seen with the physical eyes is fake. So how do you think your consciousness is going to evolve from being told from childhood that all of this is fake. Tell me this: if if someone wanted to go to one of your retreats, do, do you have a website, or do you have um, what would be the best way to get in touch with you? I do. Um, you know, there's several websites uh, for the astral projection. Uh, it's obefrance.com, or you can even type in astralprojection.com. Uh, those are the two main websites that I run. And I think one of the best ways for people to learn more about what I do is actually my YouTube channel because, yeah, I actually have instructional videos there. I actually have some of the video, some of the audio programs that we use at the retreat I've uploaded to YouTube so people can get their feet wet. People can have their own direct experiences. So I've got how-to videos up on my YouTube channel. So I think that's, you know, if people go onto YouTube and type in my name, Todd Akamesis, that's uh, ACA. M-E-S-I-S, then they'll get the content they need to actually have these experiences. And if they then want to go deeper, then yeah, they can certainly visit us at one of our retreats. Or on one of your synchronicity walks in London, if they want to meet you and, and kind of understand. Oh, for sure. Which is really cool. We, I wish we would study your dice to do that here. Yeah, we wish we could go for a, a synchronicity walk in Denver with you. That would be amazing. And I'm definitely planning to come to the U.S. again very soon. I mean, it is my home country. It's just, you know, I, I, I just find it's, it's getting organized. Uh, it's, it's being, you know, really organized to be able to, to pull off a nice little tour of the U.S. And I'll get there, though, because, you know, it is important to me. But the synchronicity walks, I mean, those in themselves are real eye-openers. And it's, it's, to me, it's no different from an out-of-body experience uh, because I see that at some point we have to learn how to have an in-body experience. And that's what these synchronicity walks really do. And to me, an out-of-body experience and an in-body experience, effectively, they're the same thing. You know, it's just they're only separated by vibration. One is 
out of the body, one is in the body, but ultimately you're just looking to become as present as you can be so that you can get more from the experience, you can do more, you can become interactive, you know, you can actually be present enough to, to see people, to feel people, instead of numbing ourselves to the point where we're completely blind, you know, to, you know, how other people, you know, are living, completely oblivious to how people feel. So these synchronicity walks really help people wake up. Uh, if you can imagine, you know, synchronicity, it's a, it's a meaningful coincidence. Right. Uh, on, the, on the very last walk, you know, this was illustrated so powerfully. We rolled the dice. Uh, the very first roll of the dice is always to find our group number. Our number was number two, so we rolled the number two. The idea is that you then follow every time the number two occurs after that point, you follow it like a white rabbit, uh, like the metaphor, follow the white rabbit down the, the rabbit hole. So Alice in Wonderland kind of metaphor. So we rolled the dice, we got the number two, and, and then we started walking in a particular direction. And then we came across, uh, within a couple of minutes, we came across a, a, a bar that was called, uh, a club that was called the Lucky Club. And so we rolled the dice again to decide uh, whether we go in or not. Most people would be like, of course you go in. It's called the Lucky Club. You came across it. But the idea with a synchronicity walk is you let go of all control. You let go of all those preconceptions, all those assumptions about reality, and all that control because we're control freaks. We want to control everything because we're actually feeling so out of control. We're feeling so helpless. We want that fake control. We want to control everyone and everything around us. So these synchronicity walks are like a, it's a spiritual training in letting go. Letting go so you can enter that natural flow that, ex, that, that can be experienced once again when we realize that, hey, I don't have to be such a control freak. You know, there is a guiding force. I just have to learn to trust it again. There is this built-in navigation system like, like GPS, you know, and so that's what I teach on these walks. So anyhow, we roll the dice, we ask the yes or no question, should we go into the club? It came up, um, yes, uh, it was the, the odd numbers were no, the even numbers on the dice were yes, we rolled the number four. So we had the two and we had the four in play. We went into the club. We walked up to the bar, to where the bartender was, because we were going to ask her to roll the dice for us. And on their bar sat two dice in this container. And it said, roll the dice to win a prize. And the two dice were on the number two. Both of them were on the number twos. So not only did we now have the occurrence of the number two, we also, when you added those up, that was number four. four that was right. the number that got us into the club. You know, and it's like, that was the beginning of the walk. That was within the first five minutes. And the whole walk proceeded, you know, to unfold oh, in a very similar way. This sounds incredible. I mean, this, the, I, I, my friend David and I are so into synchronicities. We're always sharing the ones we come across. You know, we'll just call each other out of the blue and say, I had a great synchronicity yesterday. I mean, this sounds like something that would be really incredible to go on. But I do have one more other, other question for you. Can you die when you're in the astral world? Because we talk about doing all this stuff where you're alive and confrontation sometimes. But can you actually die in that world? I think it's no different from here. The answer is always going to be, uh, okay, well, no, no. I'm going to step back from that. If you, if you mean die in the sense that you're out of your body and you die while you're out of body, or do you mean... I think you, die when you're, like, in that plane. <laughs> Can you die in that plane and come back to your so body? You're, let's say you're, so you're living in that plane of reality. 
So you've, you've transitioned death from physical reality. You're now living in that reality. Can you die in that reality? Is that your question? I, I guess my question is: is 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 if if you're going into this like lucid dream or this or this astral projection, while you're there, could you get like stabbed and like actually die in that th- in that plane and then come back to this world? No, it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't I mean, work that way. Obvious. You can you can get stabbed. I have been stabbed on many occasions. Uh, sometimes I ask for it just because I <laughs> want to experience it. I I want to I want to know myself. Can I die in this reality? And the answer is no. It can happen sometimes as I come back to my body and I have a I have a mark on my body in the exact same place where I've now encountered no you know, way some some ex- yeah. Wow. I mean, I've, I've I've had they're they're usually temporary. They might last only a few hours or a few days, but I've definitely had marks that correspond with something that has happened to me while out of body. No kidding. I know you've been doing some video monitoring of yourself doing out-of-body experiences. What have you discovered? I had a really amazing experience uh, recently. It was only about a month ago, a couple months ago maybe. Uh, I was camping in the Scottish Highlands in the winter, the dead of winter. This was in, uh, you know, in, in uh, January. Would you lose and, a bet? I mean, well, who would want to camp up there in the middle of the winter? <laughs> I think the, the thing with it is people do ask me, why do you put yourself in an extreme situation like that? And for me, it's sometimes, you know, I look at it this way. Look at, look at in the wintertime, what happens, you know, to, to people? What happens to nature? It starts to go, it slows down. We almost like hibernate. We self-isolate. You know, it's just that time of year where everything just seems to want to slow down, even like a wild river, a wild twisting river in, a, in the great north somewhere, you know, you throw enough cold at it, doesn't it slow it down? It slows yeah. it down. You might even, you know, completely slow down the surface layer by free, it freezing over. So for me, I was, it was almost like uh, spiritual training. It was a way to wake myself back up. It was a way to make myself feel alive by coming to terms with the cold, by making the cold, uh, you know, part of my training. So... You know, there's various reasons why I do it, but anyhow, I threw myself in it, and I think it was the second night. I had uh, this EMF device that can detect electromagnetic fields. I had it maybe, you know, a couple feet away from my body, and uh, I've already been able to get out of my body and set this device off. I've had cameras that have picked up me setting off this device. So I'm in this Scottish backcountry. It's really cold. Uh, it got down below freezing one night, and the cold exceeded the cold rating of my sleeping bag. And there was this one point where I was coming out of my body. Uh, because I do this so often, sometimes I just wake up in the night, suddenly feel the sensation, like an effervescent type of sensation. I feel myself moving out of my body. So on this occasion, I was, I was just moving out of my body from the sleeping bag, and then I felt two pairs of hands suddenly push me back down into my body. And then as I was now back in my body, and I could feel my body, this, this uh, EMF device was then triggered. It was like a ghost hunting device uh, uh, for detecting, you know, these magnetic fields of non-physical uh, beings. And the alarm started going off. I didn't think much of it. Uh, I think it was a few minutes later. I then felt the effervescent feeling again. I started rising up away from my body again. And for the second time, these hands pushed me back down into my body. 
the alarm went off a second time. So the, the, this device was picking up these fields, you know, whether it was my field or whether it was the field of these two beings that were in the tent, but in the tent from a, a non-physical uh, you know, perspective. They were just, they were in another frequency, uh, you know, the next dimension up, if you like, but this device was picking up this activity. So anyhow, I think it was about 10, 15 minutes later, I was finally able to get to sleep. I went straight into a dream. And again, because dreams are very vivid for me, because I practice this stuff, this character walked straight up to me in this dream and was like, you know, there was like alarm in his voice. He was like, you have to wake up. You know, you're, you need to regulate your body. You have to wake up now. And I woke back up from the force of that interaction. And my body was like just in these, had these extreme shakes. I mean, I was, my body was trying to regulate itself. And what had been happening earlier, I discovered, was by going naturally, having those two out-of-body experiences earlier, if I would have gone out of body and I would have gone to have a, a nice play on another dimension of reality, I wouldn't have been aware that my body was on the verge of, of hypothermia. I wouldn't have been aware that it was on the verge of potentially dying because, you know, I was out of body. So literally was having this near-death experience, and these beings were so concerned, they, they literally pushed my etheric body back into my physical body, if you want to call it that. It's a little bit more interesting than that. No, uh, that's, that's incredible. That's, and, and, and then, like you said, when you finally fell asleep, they're like, dude, you got to wake up. you got to check in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I you're, really such a, you're such a force here for this teaching. I don't think you... They're gonna let you leave here. Yeah, for a while. Uh, you, I, you know, you know what I think. You know what I think might be a great way to to wrap this up would be. Um, do you have some mantras you use for out of body experiences, and maybe we could kind of because we usually like to do a little meditation or a little something here to kind of wrap things up. Maybe it'd be fun to do a little one of your little mantras. For sure. I mean, one of my you know mantras are actually a big part of my astral projection practice. Uh, so what I would suggest to people is this, if they want to try this out, first thing is to become you know, very grounded in their body, of course. Become very grounded in their own thought processes. I think it's like any boundary-dissolving experience. You know, it's, it's learning to, to, to really make friends with this, this, this idea, to, to show the intent, to have a very strong intention. This is what I'm going to do. And to have a very positive mindset about it. If you have fears, then you have to work through those fears. And, you know, if you have any doubts, and again, work through those doubts, maybe plan this a week in advance. Like, even if you were, like, you know, sometimes people go to have an ayahuasca experience, you know, this, right. this mystical tea in the Amazon, you know, and they're told months in advance, okay, plan for this, you know, plan, prep, you know prepare your body for this, prepare your mind for this. I see it exactly the same without a body experiences. I think... Give yourself a good week or so in advance and think about it every day and allow any fearful thoughts to come up. Learn how to resolve those thoughts. Learn how to, you know, really be at peace with these thoughts. Learn how to observe them instead of being controlled by them. Learn how to do the forgiveness work around this stuff and then let it go. Because it, when we learn to, to, to deal with these fears in this effective way, you know, it's no different from now. What I would be telling people now, you know, with the virus scare that's going on, you know, you have to move your body. You have to move your energy. You have to breathe. You have to animate yourself. You know, if you have to go and take a hit on a bong, but 
you know, do what you need to do to really get yourself, you know, centered on presence. Get yourself centered on the reality that you're not, your fear. So it's the same with the out-of-body stuff. I think there's preparation work that must be done. There are people that can just lie down and it's just something that spontaneously happens for them. Maybe it was because, you know, the, all the lifetimes leading up to this lifetime, all those past lives, they were practicing OBE stuff. They were practicing astral projection. And, of course, it's a talent that they brought with them. If it's not a talent you have, you have to develop it as a skill. And you think about every skill, you know, of, of an athlete, for an example. You know, how do people practice, you know, kicking field goals? They don't just kick it once and get lucky and think, okay, I can do it now forevermore. They have to practice, you know, maybe four or five hours every single day. And I'm not advocating that people take four or five hours out of their day, but I am saying that you need to find a way to connect with this. You need to find a way to prepare yourself, your mind for it, your body for it, your energy for it. So take about a week, really think about it on a regular basis. Think about what would I do if I did get out of my body? Because this is another thing. People get out of their bodies and they're like, where do I go? What do I do? They're suddenly like they're a kid in a candy store and they don't know which way to reach. <laughs> yeah, totally. So be prepared. Have a plan. Know what you're going to do. Have an idea of who you'd like to meet. That kind of thing can get you excited because, you know, it's like there's three classic steps for manifesting anything in life. You know, step one is getting very, you know, very clear about what you want to manifest. Step two would be, you know, um, what's the purpose of this? If I'm So if step one is, getting out of body, then step two would be, okay, well, where am I going to go? <laughs> and then after that, you know, you get really clear, you know, you've, you've got super clear, you understand the purpose. The third step is the action. The third step is the ritual, and that ritual does for me include mantras. So I would lie down, I'd do maybe a good 30 minutes of breathing before I even think about, you know, using the mantras for out of body. I would just Build my energy, because think of it this way. How many people, and think for yourselves right now, do you sometimes feel at the end of a day, a hard-working day, that you, you barely had enough energy to make it through that day? How on earth have you now got enough energy to leave your body and go to another dimension of reality? So we have to be realistic. Build our chi. Build our prana. So lie there for 30 minutes. Do really good breathing. Go online, you know, uh, learn about pranayama breathing, learn about the Wim Hof method, any sort of breathing that can activate your energy centers to bring them to life, to bring this vital force energy into our etheric bodies, our astral bodies, to, to enliven them to have these experiences consciously. So I'd breathe, I'd breathe for a good 30 minutes. After the breathing, I know my body is primed. I know my energy centers are primed. I know my astral body is primed. At that point, I will literally focus my attention completely away from my body because my body doesn't need my attention for an out-of-body experience. So I have to focus away from my body. So I would imagine myself walking around my house. Uh, you know, I'm just pretending to be walking around my house, interacting with objects, and I'm using mantras like, now I raise my vibration for astral projection. Now I raise my vibration to the, to the level of the astral plane. And I just keep repeating these mantras, walking around, pretending I'm walking around, pretending I'm going places, making it as vivid and real as I possibly can, completely letting my physical body off the radar. I don't even want it to register. 
and I'm just repeating these kind of mantras. Now I'm out of body. Now I raise my internal vibrational vibration, vibration to the next dimensional level. I'm safe. I'm protected. I'm surrounded with love. You know, the light of the light of love. And I just use the mantras to help really center myself on the idea of astral projection. I just make stuff up. I make stuff up on the fly. I continue to do it to this day because I'm passionate about it. And I don't, once I start that practice, I don't then practice, you know, the, the mantras and the visualization for 20 minutes. I do it for an hour. I do it for two hours. Sometimes I do it for three hours straight before I stop because my mindset is I don't stop until I succeed. And even if I don't succeed on that day, success could be as simply as finishing you know, the hour that you said you'd do. Success could be finishing the two hours you said you'd do. And then being consistent, doing it the next day and the next day, because that's what a Jedi master would do. Let's face it, if we were going through Jedi training, you know, it's getting to learn patience. It's getting to learn that you have to have this strong intent and will, you know, and passion to want to succeed and realizing that sometimes you're going to fail quite a few times before you actually overcome the obstacles and succeed. Right. Wow, that was incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. This has really been enlightening. And I, and again, uh, your websites, do you want to mention those one more time? We will, put, we will certainly put them up on, uh, with the uh, podcast, but if you want to mention them one sure. more time. So I would definitely direct people probably first and foremost onto my uh, YouTube channel because they're going to be able to actually get uh, some immediate answers. They're going to be able to get some practical solutions for, you know, testing reality for themselves. Okay, that's on YouTube, Todd Akamesis, T-O-D-D-A-C-A-M-E-S-I-S. That's correct. They can also Google your name. For sure, if they Google my name, they'll get a whole, you know, they'll get many rabbit holes to go down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I was so excited to do this. I'm, I'm very thankful, Todd. Oh, Nancy, my absolute pleasure. And we know you're very, very busy because we, you know, we tried to get in touch with you a while back. And we know you're really busy. So taking your time out, especially being in a different time zone, we really appreciate you uh, giving us this time uh, to share with our listeners. I know we all appreciate it. Believe me, I'm, I'm super grateful. And, I, and I'm really, I'm always excited for the opportunities. It does sometimes take me a while to reply, but I, I'm, you know, I'm always grateful for the opportunities. We're grateful for you. Well, I love you, Todd. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. (laughs) Love you both. Thank you very much for having me on. And we'll talk to you next time on Imagine Akasha. Bye-bye. Look forward to coming back.